We're going through a series that we've entitled God With Us, How God Works When Life Doesn't. And as Brad just already mentioned, there there are several ways that we experience that we would look at life and we say, it's just not working. Things did not go the way that I thought they would. I didn't think I would end up in the situation that I am now, that because we live in a broken world, oftentimes we struggle with sin, death, despair, discouragement. And the hope of the Christian message that there is a resurrection, that we gather together in part on a Sunday because what we are marking, what we are remembering is that something happened on a Sunday that changed everything. And so Easter for us is not just a a one-time event in the year, it's something that we mark all throughout the year and all throughout our lives as Christians that because Jesus rose again, then we can say with confidence there is something stronger than death. There is something stronger than the evil and the pain and the suffering that we experience. There is hope beyond death. There is life beyond death. And God actually, all throughout the Bible, saves some of his greatest work and does his sweetest acts of kindness and mercy into the very situations where we think all hope is lost. This is a dead-end road. This is going nowhere. And then God does what you and I cannot do. The story that we're looking at to to, to kind of show that in in the real flesh and blood of a family is an Old Testament story of a person named Joseph. And where life wasn't working for him is that his own siblings betrayed him. They didn't like the fact that he was the favorite of the father. He was having dreams and and sharing his dreams that he was going to one day be greater than all of his siblings. They just got so fed up with that that they just wanted to get rid of him. And in their mind, getting rid of him was selling him off into slavery to another nation. And from everything they could imagine would happen, he wouldn't last very long. And so in their minds, their brother is dead and gone. And that's exactly what the father thought when he came home, when the, when the siblings came home and they realized that Joseph wasn't with them. They brought this coat of his that was covered in blood. It wasn't his own blood, but Jacob thinks that this is the blood of his own son. And so he has no reason to believe that his son is alive. Joseph is dead. He is gone. And we just have to move on. And then we get through the book of Genesis, this unfolding of a story of God beginning to work out a plan that only God can make happen to bring life into this situation, to show that death was not the end, that there is something greater and something stronger at work than what we experience. And so that's what we're looking at. What does it mean when God is with us? What can God do in our lives that we cannot do for ourselves? But kind of to set the the big idea, that's the big idea for this series. The big idea for today is how we can know about each other when certain things have gone wrong, that actual change and growth and repentance has happened. So if you think of it this way, how can you tell that someone is either excited or sad? If you're just looking around and you're trying to gauge the people sitting next to you, how can you tell if they're either in a good mood today or in a bad mood today? Well, you'd have a certain you know, list of things in your own mind that you don't necessarily articulate, but you're, you're trying to pick up on things from other people. Well, how do you know that the person next to you or around you is trustworthy? You have a different set of questions, right? To say, okay, is that someone I can trust or is that someone that I can't trust? 
But what we're going to look at today in Genesis 44 is even a little bit deeper than that. The question is, how do you know you can trust somebody when in the past they've broken your trust? How do you know if you can trust somebody again if at some point in the past they've actually broken your trust? See, it's one thing just to be ignorant of each other and to say, you know, I I think I can trust you. I don't know much about you. You don't know much about me. And so we're just kind of starting with a fresh, clean slate. And and we don't have too many reasons not to trust one another. That's very different than when we have information. And the information that we have is that you're unsafe. I I, I shared something with you. and, And you didn't keep it like I thought you would keep it. So if it's possible that that person who was not trusting could change. How would you know that? How would you know that they're, they're really changed? They're really different. But that's what Joseph's dealing with. He's got his 10 brothers who are capable of lying, cheating, and harming him to the point of selling him off and just wanting to completely be done with him, to get rid of him. And 20 years later, They see each other again. And for him, the big question is, are these the same people that did what they did to me 20 years ago? Are they just as motivated by selfishness and hatred? Are they just as prone to violence? But I know what they did to me. I know what they're capable of. And so, okay, Joseph, how would you know if they're different now? How would you tell if some change has happened inside of them, that they're really broken over what they did and that you can have a new relationship with them? That's a part of what our chapter in Genesis 44 is getting at. There's actually been a series of events in chapter 42 and 43, but 44 kind of brings us all to a culmination. Joseph is setting up these tests to figure out Are his brothers the same as they were, or has anything changed? So I invite you now to open your Bible to Genesis 44. It's on page 38 if you're using one of these Bibles that's provided for you there in the pew. But what we're getting here is Joseph interacting with his brothers. They don't know he's Joseph. He knows who they are. They don't know who he is. And he's trying to determine if they've really changed. Can they now be trusted? So beginning in verse 1. What happened just at the end of 43, in case you weren't with us last week, is they're all together and they've shared a meal together. So they're in the same physical space. And the brothers are there because they're just trying to get food to take back to their family in Canaan. But all of what we're reading about now is happening in Egypt. So the brothers have come to Egypt just looking to get food to take back to their family Joseph is the person that they have to get the food from, though they don't know who he is. And right after their meal together, at the end of 43, this is what we read. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain." As he did, as Joseph, and he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They'd gone only a short distance from the city. And now Joseph said to his steward, Up, 
follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Well, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. And then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. And when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to you, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And then you said to your servants, unless your younger brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. And when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with a sorrow. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy 
as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And that concludes today's reading. I've titled this message, A Roundabout Way. It's actually a way we could describe Genesis 42, 43, and 44. Joseph is, is setting up all of these tests. and seems like, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this again? Why are you trying to, to trick your brothers? What are you trying to get from them? He's working in this roundabout way. It seems like just all these detours are happening and nobody's sure where we're actually going. But by the end of it, what we see is in all of these detours, in this roundabout way, he is trying to get to the heart of the matter. And so he's, he's intentionally doing this to get straight to the heart. He's going roundabout in this game of, of gotcha to figure out what's inside their heart. It is, if you will, the fastest way to find out what's really inside And so that's how our passage begins in verses one and two. It's Joseph who has the idea to set up all the brothers in a trap to see how they will react when they're found guilty of another crime. So Joseph's at work here. He has an idea beyond just catching them. He's trying to figure out what is inside their heart because there are times where direct confrontation or direct information actually has a way of concealing things. When you really, really want to know what somebody thinks, there's sometimes where it's helpful that they don't know everything that you know. Okay, a dynamic for how this works for me on a regular basis is when I'm meeting somebody I've never met before, one of the fastest conversation killers is to tell them I'm a pastor. After that point, I just don't know if what they're saying to me is actually true uh, because there always seems to be this temptation to, oh, you're a pastor? I do this or I do that. And, and just to say things that I don't know if they would otherwise say to me if, if I just said, no, I just, you know, I work at a restaurant down the street. And so this happens every other week when I go to get a haircut. I first have to overcome the awkward, are you here to get a haircut? Yes, I am here to get a haircut. Um, and then it's, well, what do you do? You know, are you, are you off of work today or this or that? No, I'm just, you know, I'm taking a short break to do this. So where do you work? I, I work for a nonprofit. Oh, you work for a nonprofit. Um, what, what kind of, why, it's a church. I work on staff at a church. What do you do at the church? I'm a pastor at the church. And depending on who it is, it just totally changes the conversation. So I'm, I love being a pastor. I feel called to be a pastor. I'm not ashamed of that. But I don't know that I always then get just the real authentic information that I could get about somebody if they didn't know that. And here, Joseph, if he could just immediately tell them, hey, I'm Joseph, don't you know what you did to me? He could confront them for sure, but that's not ultimately his goal. He wants to know something else about them. He wants to know what's inside their heart. And if they realize who they're dealing with, there'd be all this pressure just to start making stuff up. Like, I mean, because not only is he the one that they have harmed, But Joseph is now in a position of power that he can do basically anything he wants to them. They say it in this chapter. They say, Joseph, you're basically like Pharaoh. In other words, you you have power, and so you can do whatever you want. So if we know who you are, 
Of course they're going to say certain things just to try to get out of the bad situation that they're in. And so for Joseph, the way to get straight to the heart is actually to set them up, to give them incomplete information, and to try to bring out of them what he wants to know is there, whether they know who he is or not. And that's what he wants to find out. Are they broken over what they did to me 20 years ago? Do they realize it was wrong and that they would never do that again to anybody else? I want to know that. And so for Joseph, the way to get to that, to straight to the heart, is to set them up in this way. And so just in case you weren't able to quite follow the details, the way that he sets them up is he sends them back to their country. They put all the food in their bags and then he puts their money back in the bags and then he takes a very special um, item from his own house and he puts it intentionally and specifically in the hands of the youngest brother, Benjamin. So that if these guys are caught on the way, they'll look like thieves, but not only thieves stealing this food, but even stealing something very precious directly from the home of Joseph when he just shared them a meal. He just welcomed them in. He just showed mercy to them. How could they do this to him? And so that's, that's his plan, to, to stuff all of their bags with money and to specifically put in Benjamin's sack the silver cup. And so they, they go out. The morning is come. The, the light is out. They're ready to go. And so all of these brothers return. They feel a sense of relief. They're safe. They've got food to come home. And Benjamin, the youngest brother, is with them. So everything looks good. And then all of a sudden, they get pulled over on the way. Joseph Stewart, a servant of his, stops them and challenges them. And he says, how can you return evil for good? That's in verse 4. And they, they don't, they're not aware of anything that they've done. And so even before the investigation takes place, they say, they basically give the verdict. And they say, if we've done what you say, if that's true, then let all of us become your servants and let the one who has the silver cup die. That doesn't come from the mouth of Joseph's servant. That comes from the mouth of the brothers. That they, not knowing yet if, if they can actually be proven to have done this, they just say, if somebody did something like that, this is what should happen to that person. They should all become servants, and the one who took the cup dies. So it's their own statement. It's their own standard. And so part of what Joseph is doing is here, he's trying to expose to them the ugliness of sin. So he's trying to get straight to their heart, and he's trying to expose to them the ugliness of sin. And, and they can say it in their own words. Man, if somebody was willing to do something like that, this is how they should be punished. And then the steward opens up the bags and he starts from the oldest to the youngest. And so we don't know, as it went on, were they getting more sense of relief or were they getting increasingly nervous? But okay, the first one, we're good. The second one, we're good. They're going and going and going. And then it gets to Benjamin the youngest brother who they were nervous about bringing because of their father's love for him, their father's own health condition. And he's the one who's found with the silver cup. And so now by their own words, he is the one who deserves to be punished. They all deserve to be slaves, but he's the one who deserves 
to die by their own words. And so the, the ugliness of sin is exposed in this trap. Why would you take when Joseph was willing to freely give you things and to send you off? Why would you take something? And they don't quite realize all that's going on, but they know if that in fact has been done, then it's wrong. And they can say it's wrong. They can say it's evil. They can say it's sin. And they can say that sin deserves to be punished. And those are two critical things that we struggle with in our own minds and heart. Can we admit our own sins? When we admit them, can we admit that they deserve in some way to be punished? That, that's a sign of repentance. A sign of a heart that is transforming. That we can admit the wrongness of what we've done and that in doing that, we can also say that if we've done something wrong, there deserves to be some kind of punishment. They freely admit it. Now here's what Joseph does to them. Now he tests them, not by just, first what he did was he set them up and accused them of sin, but now what he does is he declares a a sort of mercy and forgiveness upon them to see if they're going to be satisfied with that. They said, we all should become slaves, and the one person who did this should die. Joseph says, no, no, how about this? Only the one person who was found with it becomes a slave, so he doesn't die, and everybody else gets to go free. I mean, for most, it's like, wow, okay. <laughs> we put our foot in the mouth, and you just, you just forgave us. I mean, we said that all of us should become your slaves, and that this guy should die, and what you're willing to do is to say, yeah, you're caught, but how about just the one person who took the cup? How about just that person become a servant and everybody else go free? So he's showing them mercy. He's showing them compassion. He's offering some form of forgiveness to them. He's holding them to, a, if you will, a lesser standard than even they proclaimed for themselves. And here, he's not just trying to expose the ugliness of sin. He's trying to measure the depth of their change. Have they changed? Have they really, really changed? They're all looking at this situation and the options before them where they could be servants now for the rest of their lives. And he says to them, they can go free. Are are they just going to take that? Are they just going to run with that and say, hey, sounds like a good deal to me. Doesn't exactly work out well for Benjamin, but even for Benjamin, it's better than what could have happened. And so it's okay if Benjamin has to suffer in order for the rest of us to go free. If that's the decision that they make, then it's very similar to the decision that they made 20 years ago. That they looked at Joseph and they said, you know, all all of this conflict that he's bringing, that he's the father's favorite, that he's going to one day rule over us, if we can get rid of him, this one person, maybe it'll be better for the rest of us. And so now they're, they're faced with a very similar challenge. You all can go free, and only one of your siblings stay here. And for Joseph, what he set up for them is, are you going to make the exact same decision that you made before? 
And then one of the brothers, Judah, in verse 18, steps up. They all come back. They're all weeping. It says in verse 13 that they tore their clothes. It's just a sign of repentance. They, this isn't good news that there's mercy, that only Benjamin is going to stay. Because every one of them knows what's going to happen to their father if they go home without Benjamin. And so it's Judah who stands up. And he basically has two approaches in what he says to Joseph. The first is to remind Joseph, hey, you're the one that wanted Benjamin here, okay? Maybe he, he's obviously been found with this, but we didn't bring him with us the first time. And we told you we shouldn't even bring him the second time. We told you what would happen to our father if we brought him with us. And so, if you will, he's kind of almost putting as much of the burden of the responsibility on Joseph himself. You're the one who demanded that this guy come, okay? And then he makes very clear what will happen if they go home and Benjamin is not with them. He says, our father, whose life is bound up in Benjamin's life. They're they're so interconnected. The love and the relationship that they have with one another is so deep that if we come home without him, just even the moment he sees that, he'll die. We're not going to have a chance to explain to him what happened or how you showed mercy and that he's only a servant and he's not put to death. Just the moment he sees from afar that he's not with us, that's what's going to happen. And so Judah's making this argument to Joseph. You wanted him to be here and our father's life is actually in your hands. You're not just making a decision about Benjamin. And you're not just making a decision about us. The consequences of this decision are going to affect our father as much, if not more so, than they're going to affect us. And there he is. He's like, wow. Look at, look at how he's talking. Look at how he's thinking. Look at how concerned he is for how his father would react. He's, he's not as much concerned for himself. Look at how much in all of his emotion and his pleading with me, he's putting the father's heart and the father's desires above his own. That's exactly what he didn't do 20 years ago when Jacob's life was bound up in the life of Joseph, when he was the favorite one. That, that was the very thing that made him angry at Joseph and made him want to get rid of Joseph. And here, though he can see that Benjamin is, is treated in a special way, that actually moves him now to compassion to say, no, you don't understand. It's just not even worth us going back. We, we shouldn't even go back home. How could we do this to our own father? And Joseph is getting this glimpse that in these 20 years, there has been a work inside of the heart of these siblings that they put themselves before their father. They put their individual preferences above the family. And now they don't talk like that anymore. And they're not acting like that anymore. And so he's able in this indirect way, in this roundabout way to get them to express not only the ugliness of their own sin, but to really show if their hearts and minds have changed and if according to that, their actions 
will be different. And as it's unfolding, here they are standing on behalf of their younger, weaker brother when 20 years ago, that's what they were unwilling to do. But not only is he trying to measure the depth of their change, the way the speech ends, if you almost cut it off at verse 32, and he says, you know, if you do this, we're going we're gonna, to, the blame, basically he's, he's making clear to them that the father is going to suffer. If the speech would have ended at 32, he's put some of the pressure on Joseph to say, you're the one who wanted Benjamin here. You know what's going to happen to our father. Please let him go. That could be verse 33, right? He just, based on what I'm telling you, I'm asking you to please let him go. But that's not what verse 33 says. In verse 33, what Judah then does is he offers himself. Look at it. Judah says, now therefore, Please let your servant, he's talking about himself, please let me, Judah, remain instead of the boy, Benjamin, as a servant and let the boy go back with his brothers. So that's what he says. If somebody has to pay the price for this, if somebody has to suffer and become a servant because of this crime and this sin that was done, let me bear the punishment Let that come to me and let him go free. Let me be a substitute so that he can go free. Let me pay the price so that Benjamin can go free. And here we see that Joseph in this roundabout way is able to determine the extent of their love. The extent of their love for their brother and for their father, not just that they've changed, not just that they can see sin in all of its ugliness, but in love and in compassion, he can even offer himself as a substitute for his own brother, that he loves his father that much. And that verse 33 doesn't just end with a plea, please let him go. But if somebody has to suffer, I love my father enough and I love my family enough. Let me be the one who suffers so that the rest can go free. Chapter 45 tells us how Joseph responds to that. But this is exactly what Joseph is trying to draw out of them to see what is really inside of them. Have they changed? He knows what's happened to him for 20 years, but he hasn't seen them. And so what has God done in their life and in their hearts? Are they really different? Can they really be trusted again? Is it possible to actually have a relationship with them again? I'd like to go to a New Testament passage just by way of conclusion into 1 John chapter 3 to see how all throughout the Bible we see these things intertwined together. This is on page 1022, 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Here we get a description of of many of these themes of what love looks like and how our own relationship with each other and our attitude towards one another is an indication of our own relationship with God. 
So 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, page 1022. By this we know love. How do we know if someone loves us? Specifically God, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for one another. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, And reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So there at the beginning in verse 16, we have this description of God's love for us. How do we know that God loves us? It says that his son was willing to be a substitute for us. He was willing to, to lay down his life for us. He, Jesus, was willing to become bound and enchained a slave so that we could be set free. That's what God was willing to do. That's how he was willing to show us love, to expose sin in all of its ugliness and to show us that our relationship with him can actually change. And he did it by showing us the extent of his love by being willing to die. Then the question is, well, how do we know if we've really received that love? If we've, if we've really said yes and we've embraced that and we've accepted it into our own lives, well then, he says, we ought to be willing to lay down our lives for other people. If we've received that love, And we say somebody has has been that great and that good to us. And we're the beneficiaries of that. We can know that when in our own hearts we're experiencing a kind of change and and a resurrection in our own thoughts, in our own feelings to have compassion for people, for being willing to serve them and to love them even when that service and that love for them comes at a cost to us. We never become their savior. We never become Jesus for them. But if we really believe in Jesus, that's exactly how he's going to challenge us to treat and to interact with other people. And this is how we can determine and know what's inside our own hearts. Have we embraced the message? Have we, as it says in verse 23, do we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ? Okay, if we believe it, then what we should see is that we love one another just as he commanded us and that we keep his commandments. In other words, we do the things that he wants us to do. It just doesn't make any sense to say, I believe in Jesus, I just don't take any of his advice. Well, then you don't believe him. You don't trust him. To say you believe him is to say you trust him and If we trust him, then we are willing to do the things that he tells us 
to do. Well, why? Because he loves us so much. And he showed us the extent of his love. So when he asks me to do something hard and he asks me to do something difficult, it's not because he doesn't love me. He's already shown me that he loves me. And because I know that and I can trust in that, I can do the things that he asks me to do even when they're hard, even when they might come at a cost to myself. And then he gives a very specific example. You can almost hear the Joseph story. If anyone sees his brother in need, and doesn't help him, the love of God does not abide in him. 20 years ago, when Joseph's brothers were standing there and he was in a pit, it wasn't just that they were not loving their brother. They weren't loving their heavenly father. They weren't loving the God who made them. And because of that, they could hear him crying and just say, oh well. And something now has happened in the course of this 20 years that when they look at Benjamin and they see that he's going to suffer, they cry out and say, no, no, no. If I can serve in his place, then I'm willing to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do have hope that is beyond what we can see, beyond what we experience so much in this world. Father, that there is a life that is stronger than death. There is a salvation that is greater than sin. It is possible for us who are broken and who struggle with sin and temptation to be so changed and transformed that we can become loving again, that we can become trustworthy again that you not only save us from the outside, but that you come and you abide inside of our hearts and you change us and that you can make us new creation in you. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that work in us in whatever roundabout way you have determined is best. Father, we ask you to expose the ugliness of our sin, to help us to change, and to give us the kind of love for each other that you have for all of us. In your son's name we pray, amen.